Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers. University of Michigan graduate Joe Henry is an accomplished singer-songwriter in his own right. He has released numerous critically acclaimed albums and has a new album due sometime in 2014. He is also an accomplished music producer. He's produced albums for everyone from Elvis Costello to Rodney Crowell to Moe Allison to Hugh Laurie to Betty LeVette to Bonnie Raitt. And now, Joe Henry has written a book with his brother, David Henry, a noted screenwriter, about the comedian Richard Pryor. The book is called Furious Cool, Richard Pryor and the World That Made Him. To start our interview, I asked Joe Henry why he decided to write a book with his brother about the legendary comedian. The cleanest version of the story I can tell you, and I'll try not to make it overly long, though it, though, though it is sort of a sprawling journey, uh, in 2000, on my album called Scar, I had, I had opened the album with a song called Richard Pryor Dresses a Tearful Nation, which I had recorded with the great alto saxophonist Ornette Coleman, and it was a big thing for me. It was a very important song for me. Uh, and remain so for, for for various reasons. Um, right on the eve of my record being released, I was on a label at the time that was owned by Disney, and they were very concerned about Richard as a hot topic, vul- you know, volatile character. So uh, they came to me and insisted that I do one of three things: either change the title of my song, which had Richard's name in it. Um, which I couldn't do because it tells you how to listen to the song. I sing in first person as, as Richard, but I never mention him in the song. The title is what offers you that context. So I couldn't change the title. Uh, I could leave it off my record, which I, was, uh, which I refused to do because it was sort of my, my mission statement. Or three, I could get Richard Pryor's permission. Um, and I didn't know how to do that. Um, and I fought them on it because I knew I didn't need his permission. He's a, I just used his name in a title. He's a public figure. In fact, on the same album, I've got a song called uh, Edgar Bergen. And they didn't have any problem with that. They didn't tell me I had to go find Candy Bergen and see if that was okay. So we, we argued for a while. But you know, as a result, um, through my friend T-Bone Burnett, uh, who's been sort of my genie in a bottle my entire uh, career, uh, I was able to get in touch with Richard, and and he heard the song along with his wife, and they were very moved by it, and they uh, gave me permission to use his name and and an image of him in the record package. Uh, I was then invited by Esquire magazine to write an article about Richard and Ornette and how the idea of writing about one led me to work with the other. And based on that piece, uh, Richard and his wife were so moved by it, uh, by their own words, uh, I was invited to write a screenplay based on Richard's life. You know, he'd been approached for years and years and hadn't felt ready, but now he felt ready. He knew his life was drawing to a close, I think, and asked me if I would write a screenplay based on Richard's life. And, I, of course, I said, you know, I'm not a screenwriter. I'm a, I'm a songwriter. And they said, exactly. We don't want a screenwriter. We like the way you think. We like the way you write. And I said, well, I'll give it a whirl, but uh, I don't know how to sustain something like that uh, architecturally. But my older brother, who I'm very close to, lives in Louisville, Kentucky, who is a screenwriter and a prose writer. Um, and we've always talked about trying to find something we might do together. So I enlisted his help, and we wrote a screenplay and worked on spec for a couple of years. And uh, it was the film was very close to being made. Um, and then Richard's wife sort of pulled the plug on the whole thing for reasons you know, we can talk about later or not. 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we kind of got stung and, and, and went away for a while and, you know, revamped the screenplay uh, at a certain point, and my friend Harry Belafonte suggested he might produce it. We talked about it for a while. Uh, but one day my brother said, you know, who knows what will ever happen with the screenplay? You know, even Leo DiCaprio develops screenplays for five years that don't get made. Um, this might never happen. Let's just write the book, and we can do whatever we want. And nobody, you know, we don't need anybody's help to do that. So that's what we did. I'm sorry that was such a long ramble, but Not that's a, the story. Oh, no, that's, oh, that's so fascinating, so fascinating. How do you how do you write a book with with a sibling? I mean, it's not you say you're very close to your brother, but I mean, just in in practical terms, how how, how did the, how do you put this on page? Did each of you handle a chapter or look at each other's work and add things? How, take us into the actual writing process with your brother, Joe. Well, Martin, I'm, you know my. My, my brother Dave has been in my life my entire life. He's two years my elder. So I've never known my life without him. And, and since I was probably, well, our whole lives, but certainly by the time I was, say, 11 and he was 13, you know, we were fairly inseparable. And we, we shared the same friends. And we had our bedrooms upstairs at our parents' house in Ohio. And we were discovering the same music. And, uh, you know, most of the great literature that, that, that helped form me as a songwriter, um, I, I picked up you know, I picked up off of Dave. Um, so, you know, the answer to that question on one hand, you know, because people have expressed a lot of surprise that, you know, that we're still speaking after we wrote a book together. <laughs> and I say, you know, we, we never had one crossword. We never had one disagreement about anything right in the book. Um, you know, we come at things from really different angles, but we are completely simpatico with, uh, you know, our sensibilities. So in practical terms, you know, we got together a couple of times. I, he came out here a couple of times, and I went to Louisville for a few days once. But mostly, you know, I would write on something until I hit a wall, and then I would send it to Dave, and he would have his way with it and reimagine it and, you know, come at it very fresh. And he might say, oh, this is great, but, you know, what if we take the end of your chapter there and begin it that way? What if we entered the picture that way? And I would invariably say, of course that's better. Um, or he would send me something that was architecturally very, you know, linear and clear narratively, but you know, knowing that it needed, you know, poetically to be uh, messier um, and more confused because that's that's how that story gets told. And I would take what he wrote and then and and abstract it a bit if I thought it needed that. So we basically just swap things back and forth, you know, to to a degree which you know where. I certainly read things and know what I wrote and know what Dave wrote, but there's a lot of the book where I don't have any idea who wrote what anymore. Uh, uh. And this is very much a personal and, uh, to cop your phrase, poetic, if I can use that, that term, look at Richard Pryor's life. This is not one of those, like the new uh, Beatles biography that's, you know, 2,000 pages long and it only covers the first three years of their career, <laughs> where, where you're covering every single year in minutia. This, this isn't that type of biography of Richard Pryor's life, is it? T tell me what, you're, what you were trying to get across in this really personal look at this, this great man's life. Well, we never intended for it to be a cradle-to-grave biography. It was never intended to be a traditional biography. Right. And in our estimation, it's, it's certainly about Richard, but it's, it's not only about Richard. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm allowed to, to suggest, you know, we sort of took um, Griel Marcus as our model, if you know the great, yeah. and I know you do, yeah. um, the great uh, music journalist, you know, his seminal book from the 70s, Mystery Train, up through, I think, his absolutely, uh, completely compelling book about the basement tapes um, called The Old Weird America. Um, 
you know, what, what we sort of learned from Greel is, you know, if you just look at, at how he uses Bob Dylan, for instance, you know, you can, he could take his lens and point it at Bob Dylan, or he could take Bob Dylan as his lens and look at everything else. And that's sort of what we tried to do with Richard, use him as a lens and, and look at his life, but also look at the life that he came out of, you know, what world helped create him, you know, a lot of people who care about Richard think that they sort of know what, you know, how he matters and what became of him once he was, you know, out in the mainstream. Um, but a lot of people don't, don't understand, you know, uh, where he came out of. And very much like a Bob Dylan or a Miles Davis, uh, and by the way, we're much more interested in putting him on the plane as an artist with Miles and Bob and Picasso and Malcolm X, for that matter, um, than than putting him on a, on a plane with other comedians. Oh, yeah. you know, we sort of don't think of him as another, just another comedian. I mean, you know, comedy was his, you know, was his delivery system, but it was not the point. Um, he was entertaining and he was funny, but that's not all he was. Um, he took pieces that we all recognize and put them together, you know, assembled them in a way that had never been assembled before. Just like, again, I use the example of Bob Dylan. You can listen to his very, you know, seminal, and revolutionary electric records of the mid-60s and say, well, I, I see all the elements. You know, I see that that's Jimmy Reed and Hank Williams and, you know, Allen Ginsberg, um, uh, you know, all put in a, and Robert Johnson all put in a cocktail shaker, uh, but no one's ever done that before. Um, I, can, I can identify the elements, but I don't know how this, is, this alchemy works. And Richard's kind of the same way. You can, you can understand all the elements that he drew from, but how he put them together in a way that in that moment of time galvanized everybody, um, you know, is as, is as mysterious now as it was then. Um, and that interested us, you know, what landscape did he come out of? Um, and not insignificant the fact that in the early 60s, the beginning of the civil rights movement, for instance, that he and, and Dylan and Miles and George Carlin and, uh, you know, a whole group of people who are, you know, not only sort of rewriting their own books and, and, and the books for all of us, you know, in real time, but almost all of them, on the, you know, uh, in the same three or four blocks of Greenwich Village at the same time. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that that, were, that was where Richard Pryor really got his start. That was, that was just a revel- one of the many revelations in, in your book. I just had no idea about those early beginnings of his. It's amazing to think about him, you know, um, down in the kitchen of the Café Wa, for instance, you know, uh, you know, eating a bowl of soup with, uh, you know, Odetta and Richie Havens and young Bob Dylan and the Greenbrier Boys, you know, <laughs> um, and, and Tiny Tim. Um, uh-huh. You know, but, but, it's, but again, once you understand that and can place him there, um, you know, there was just something, you know, there was something in the air for sure. And a very few significant artists knew how to breathe that air. And Richard was one of them. Mm. You talk about a, a pretty famous uh, incident for Richard Pryor where he walked off stage in, in Las Vegas. And there's a, this, this phrase about uh, comparing it to leaving the birth channel, which is, wow, that's just this really... Uh, piquant image in your book. This happened in 1967. Do you mind talking a little bit about the, this uh, sure. incident well, in Richard's life? You know, he, you know, he had started off, um, you know, in his nightclub appearances, you know, being a fairly uh, unique voice. It's not like he didn't have his own voice, 
But at a certain point, when he saw the traction that that um, Bill Cosby was getting, for instance, you know, he's, he he said, you know, he was touring somewhere in in, in Toronto and saw a full page about. Bill Cosby in Time Magazine, and he said, well, you know, they're only going to let one of us through at a time, and this guy's, you know, doing what I'm meaning to do, so I, if I'm going to have a shot here, I better do what I see he's doing that's working, and he went back to sort of family-friendly, you know, uh, less aggressive sort of comedy, you know, trying to model himself after Bill. But very quickly, you know, even though he was finding some real traction doing so, you know, he was booked into a big room in Las Vegas that that you referred to, and he comes out, and it's you know full of you know rich white people. You know, there's there's Dean Martin in the front, you know, with jewels on his fingers, and you know, uh, with a highball in front of him, sort of looking up at Richard like, you know, show us what you got. And Richard had this thought when he was standing on the stage when he first walked out that you know his grandmother who had raised him and who he loved, he said, you know, they wouldn't even let her in this place. And he looks out at this audience and he said, what the fuck am I doing here? And he dropped the microphone and left the stage. Um, and, of course, he was told you'll never work in this town again. And, and for the most part, he didn't. He did not return to Las Vegas. He went back to L.A. for a moment, but then, you know, head out for Berkeley and, and sort of disappeared into a, you know, one-room shabby apartment with a mattress and a writing table and a record player and, you know, sort of, hold up for a couple of years while he he got a, kind of got radicalized you know he became friendly with members of the black panthers um he was re- studying malcolm x he was listening to miles davis and marvin gay um and he understood that he needed not only to be funny but to be relevant and that was a real turning point mm-hmm. take us into a little further into his career what do you consider to be a, another really key breakthrough moment for for you know more mainstream success for him where you know he was just doing yeah, I mean, doing things that no one else was was doing just in terms of provocation on stage and yet had a huge, major audience. How did that come about? Well, I think the really unique thing is that something about Richard, and people talk about it all the time, anybody you ask who was there or you know who cared, is that he had this incredible sweetness about him and this uh, you know unfailing vulnerability uh, that, that, that he exposed. And he could say things to audiences, both black and white, as example. And, you know, anybody else would say the same thing. People would be, you know, offended and, and, and yelling back or, or stalking out. Um, yet Richard would, would, would say these things, and people would, would, would love him for it. They'd, they'd say, yeah, that's exactly what we're like. That's exactly what I do. That's exactly what my wife is like. You know, something about his humanity uh, transcended his race, even at a time of incredible racial uh, division. Um, people just saw his humanity and felt their own when they did. And if anybody wonders, you know, why he was able to break through into the mainstream in that moment, the way that he did, I think that's sort of the key. You know, we needed somebody who could who could address all this stuff, uh, you know, all the things that separate us each from the other, uh, in, in you know no uncertain terms, but in a way that people can accept and not just you know act defensively against. And he had that gift. And for having such a gift, what seemed like like so many people who are such great artists, so insecure about his talents, and and fell prey to 
a lot of the demons that so many other great artists fall into. And it's it's just sort of uncanny how in, in ways this, uh, the latter part of his career parallels someone like Elvis Presley wanting to get into the movies, thinking that movies were so important and then just doing one really horrible film after another. And the, and the drug use was just a, a such a overwhelming part of his life, it sounds like. Uh, no question about it. I mean, as far as like the movies, I mean, the, one reason that we really felt compelled to write the book, I think, is that, you know, when you talk to some people, even people our own age, but a lot of people younger, you know, they mention Richard Pryor, and they go, oh, I love Richard Pryor, you know, Brewster's Millions, The Toy, uh, and if you haven't bothered to, you know, peel back the onion and find out why this guy was in, you know, those mainstream movies, and they're h- horrific, you know, I mean, I've, listen, I've, I've written a book on Richard Pryor, and I've never been able to watch The Toy, I just can't get through it, I don't feel like I need to, I'm not, it's not my job, I'm not trying to write the definitive book, you know, Dave's not trying to write the definitive book, um, but if you haven't bothered to go back and find out that he was a revolutionary, you know, I, I sort of liken that experience to people who, uh, if you mention Louis Armstrong, you know, uh, you know, anybody who would have seen Pops, you know, on the Mike Douglas show in the early 70s doing Hello, Dolly, and you think, uh, oh, he's great. Um, if you don't bother to go back and find out how he got there, you would never understand that he was a revolutionary, that, that he should be on the $5 bill. We wouldn't understand why that would be true, and it is true. Um, Pops changed everything for everybody. And in a certain way, you know, Richard changed everything for everybody, whether you know it or not, um, because he offered so much understanding, um, you know, uh, for all of us. Um, but of course, you know, yeah, he's, you know, uh, anybody who was as abused as he was all through his upbringing and he was abused in every way a person can be abused, you know, uh, sexually, spiritually, physically, um, you know, on and on, um, there, there is a, sometimes an incredible, uh, hunger for affirmation that can never be sated. And, you know, you just keep looking for bigger and more, and it's no longer about your own artistic voice or your personal vision. Um, you know, yeah, that was true for Elvis at a point. You know, he got seduced away from what many of us recognize as his true gift. Uh, it is something that's barely recognizable, and, and, and Richard was the same, you know. Mm-hmm. The more successful he became, you know, uh, the bigger his entourage, the bigger his drug consumption, um, the bigger his debt. And so... Hey, you know, one more big movie, one more big movie, then I'll go back to do what I really should be doing. And you never get off that belt sometimes, mm-hmm. so it seems. Can we return to that subject of why why this uh, screenplay you were working on with your brother and got suddenly turned down by his wife? What, what happened there? Do you mind talking about that? Well, um, basically, um, and I don't want to get myself in any trouble, but, uh, you know, Richard's uh, wife, who was his wife, then they were divorced, then they were remarried towards the very end of Richard's life. Um, she is sort of the gatekeeper, you know, of, 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 his, of his legacy, at least uh, uh, legally, uh, even though that's been contested by, you know, some of Richard's children and such. That's, that's their world, not mine. Um, but it just seemed to us that, you know, even though she loved the screenplay and we were right on the verge, of, like I said, of it getting made, you know, I had connected her to uh, Billy Bob Thornton, who was going to uh, direct the film, and uh, everything was sort of moving forward. And she just, without any warning at all, pulled the plug on the whole thing. And I just think that um, I choose to believe, just based on our, our whole journey, 
that not that she suddenly became dissatisfied with the screenplay or with you know with our work, but just you know uh, didn't want the process to be over. I think she just likes to keep exploring. And as soon as something actually gets made, then that's done. And some people don't want, you know, I'm a person who loves closure, Martin. Uh, some <laughs> people don't, aren't so fond of closure. Um, I came to believe that she didn't really want a movie to be made, at least not then. Um, that she was happier to keep talking about it and keep taking meetings and, and such. And, um, again, I, I, that's her call to make. I, I say that with no disrespect you know, to whatever her journey might be or whatever hers and Richard's were at that moment. I'm just saying that from our vantage point, that's why I think it stopped. Um, but you know, painful as that was at the time, you know, um, you just, you know, we're all called, and not just artists, everybody, you know, to keep moving forward in whatever way you can. Mm. Did you have an actor chosen to portray him in the film? Uh at the time, I mean, it, was, it, it wasn't completely our call, mm. but um, at that moment, uh, both Dave and I really liked uh, the idea of Mos Def playing Richard. Mm. Um, oh, we yeah. certainly didn't think it should be a comedian. Uh, you know, it was an acting job, not a comics job. We didn't want a comedian up there doing the Richard Pryor imitation. Um, you know, we needed an actor. Um, you know, our screenplay was more, uh, you know, based on like a Raging Bull idea. Again, it, it, you know... It, it it was not a uh, it was not a you know a full biography. Um, it really looked at like a like a ten year period of his life, you know, kind of the zenith period, and a couple flashbacks and one flash forward. But mainly, we thought if we look at the at this zenith period of his life, we can kind of tell the whole story by telling the small one. Um, it would be more intense and more focused, and, and and that's sort of how how we went at it. Joe, before I let you run, I've got to ask you about uh, your own musical career. What's happening? Uh, is there going to be a follow-up to uh, the Reverie album? It's been a couple of years since that one. You working with anyone else in terms of uh, production? Bring us up to date, if you would. Well, I, I have a new album in the can, actually, that I imagine will come out uh, late April, early May. Um, I'm just sort of, along with my manager trying to uh, imagine the best way to put it out. I'm not, I'm not going to do it through a traditional label model. Um, I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, and we all have to rethink our working model. Um, and I'm very excited to do that. You know, I, I feel like I've made my best record. And in the abstract, I would think you know, that, that belief would make me uh, especially cautious about how I, how I put a record out. Um, in fact, the fact that I, I think it's my best work makes me feel sort of emboldened. Um, you know, I want to be adventurous with it. I want it to be, I want to be as bold with the, you know, with taking it into the world as I, as I hope I was making it. I'm excited. I can't wait. Wow. (laughs) That sounds great. Uh, Well, it's called invisible hour. And, uh, again, you know, I, in, in whatever way it surfaces, I don't think it'll be long now. Uh Um, sometime this, you know, later in the spring. Um, as far as production things, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of a project right now that's a reimagining of uh, a seminal Johnny Cash album from 1964 called Bitter Tears, which was all about the plight of Native Americans. Oh, yeah and, yeah. and Cash had a big battle with Columbia, who did not want to put the record out as a follow-up to his smash, Ring of Fire, because it's a very dark uh, record and a very challenging record. And Johnny went to real battle over it and was always bothered through the, to the end of his life that it wasn't ever really heard. Um, so this year is the 50th anniversary of that record, and Sony Masterworks is going to uh, reissue it to the, to 
the attention that it did not get originally, and I am producing uh, a contemporary uh, 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 re-recording of the album. Uh, I've just begun that, actually. I had a session here last week with Chris Christopherson and Gillian Welsh and David Rawlings and Rhiannon Giddens of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and I will go to Nashville in a few weeks uh, for a couple more days recording with Emmylou Harris, Gil and Dave, uh, Steve Earle, the Milk Carton Kids, and Norman and Nancy Blake. Uh, Norman Blake being the last musician alive, I believe, who played on the original record with Johnny. Hmm. So that's hmm. you know that's what I'm neck deep in uh, uh, at the moment. And that is hopefully going to come out later this year. It'll come out sometime this year. Absolutely, I would imagine the fall. Hmm. Hmm. All right, final final question. You're so generous with your time today, Joe. Sure. Where, where what is your take on where this completely insane music industry is is at right now where where i in all of my years and my 31 years now during radio i budding musicians come up to me and i just say don't don't do it don't become a music you know don't don't do this it's like the absolute worst thing you can do if you want to try and make a career out of this right now because no one believes in paying for music apparently anymore so unless you're going to do this for free and realize you're probably going to be a failure and have to get you know a, a real job i mean it's always been kind of like that right but it seems yeah. worse than <laughs> ever but but then there's this other side of it where where you know a kid who's 17 years old from new zealand lord can win two grammys and have a a, a song that's a you know worldwide hit for eight weeks who was like a nobody so it's it's the worst of times it's the best of times what what is it for you what are your thoughts about all this well, in a nutshell, Martin, listen, I, I've never really been uh, an operative in the mainstream. You know, I've worked with artists who are mainstream artists, but I'm not in the mainstream and never have been and, and, and will never be. Uh, it's just not what I do. So I've always sort of operated uh, under the premise that most everybody now recognizes, you know. Uh, the vulnerability and the, and, the, and the foolishness of pursuing this as a career has always been that. Um, I personally wouldn't discourage anybody from making music and trying to make a living out of it. It's as dicey as it's always. I mean, it's always been uh, dicey in this culture that doesn't know how to value the contributions of art in the world. That's not as true in other parts of the world, but that is our reality here. Um, I happen to not be as... Uh, of course, I know that the industry is in a free fall, and it was even before the general economy was in the, in the tank. You know, uh, these, are, these are treacherous times, but I also think that they're uh, wildly exciting times because it's the first moment since the, since the real beginning of the rock age, and by that I mean like the late 60s when there was for the first time really, really, really big money to be made, and it was a really legitimate industry. You know, the music industry became like the, you know, like the motion picture industry. Um, tons of money uh, on the table and, you know, very high stakes uh, business. This is really the first moment that the, you know, the wave is washed back off the beach and the tide has receded a bit and we get to take a little bit of stock and realize that it's been uh, completely inequitable from the very beginning, you know. Um, and for the first time since that day, artists and labels are sort of you know, on a much more equal footing. You know, the labels don't get to call all the shots anymore. They don't have the authority. They never had it, but we believed they were, we were seduced into thinking that they did. Um, so, uh, you know, now the feels a little bit even. Labels have to acknowledge that they need content. And to have it 
because people can put their own records out and do and make them in their basement, as you just described. They're going to have to um, play more fairly with people that they want to be in business with, which means artists should be owning their masters, uh, just as one example. They should be licensed to labels, but labels should not own them in perpetuity. And as dicey as all this is, and change always is, um, it's absolutely, you know, had to happen and was late in coming, and it will be for the better, ultimately. You know, people will figure this out, and not to go on and on, but the people who will figure it out, you know, most likely are the pornographers, because they've always been on the, on the front line of new technology. You know, when VHS came out and people thought, well, that's the end. Nobody will ever go see a movie in a theater again. You know, the pornographer said, you know, I'll show you how this can be, how, you know, how, how, we, how this can work for everybody. Um, same with, you know, um, you know with, with, with the digital realm and, and bringing, uh, quote, unquote, entertainment into everybody's homes. Um, you know, when there's money to be made, people are going to figure it out, and people are working right now to sort of sort it out. Um, I believe it will get sorted. Um, but my last thought on this is that, you know, um, you know, we're, you know, we're starved without music, and and it will continue to be made. It's not music that's broken. It's the delivery system that's broken, um, and it's been broken for a really long time. Uh, my friends who read the papers might, you know, who aren't in the music business are tempted to think, oh, the music business is suffering. People aren't listening to music or don't, aren't caring about it anymore. Uh, n- you know, not true. People are consuming it like they never have. Um, it's just that the, deliv- the delivery system is, is, is broken and people are confused. I know a lot of people who listen to music without paying for it who, who don't understand that that's what they're doing because we've made it just too convenient and too easy. They're not out looking to steal music. You know, they just go to Spotify and YouTube and whatever when they're, you know, at work and all, listen on their computers and stream music. And they don't think about what it means that artists aren't getting paid or paid fairly when they do so. But most people, you know, I don't think are malicious in that way. And if we give them a model that works, more people than not, uh, you know, are willing to participate. We just have to tell them how. And, and, and we're not sending them any clear signals right now as to how.